Hey everyone, this is Jake, lead pastor of Christ City Church, East Vancouver, and I want to let you know about a few things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 2605 East Pender Street in East Vancouver for worship, word, and sacrament. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church East Vancouver is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to be a part of or hear more of what we believe God has called us to do in East Vancouver, please reach out to me at jake at christcitychurch.ca. Today's scripture reading is the entirety of Exodus chapter 2. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because, she said, I drew him out of the water. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him, that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to his son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. You may be seated. And as you're being seated, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that this morning we come uh, to hear your word, but also to obey your word. Uh, I ask, we ask by your Holy Spirit that you would transform us by your word. 
We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. I'm going to apologize in advance. If you can't tell, uh, I'm pretty sick right now. And so if it's very irritating you to hear my voice, uh, this is a tough situation to be in. And, and I can't fix that. The, the second thing I, I want to do, though, is if you're new or visiting uh, and you haven't yet grabbed one of these uh, scripture journals, we have these at the back connect table. It's basically just the text of Exodus on one side and then room for you to write notes on the other side. And so it's super helpful. Word Exodus for, for like over a year, like just over a year. So, so we're going to be here a while. Might as well write some notes while you're at it, okay? So uh, back connect table, grab these scripture journals. If you haven't yet got one, uh, we got some more for you. If we need to get more, we'll get more, but I hope that helps and serves you. Our passage this morning comes as we leave Exodus chapter 1. And Exodus chapter 1, if you've been with us, ended on a bit of a cliffhanger. A cliffhanger. Last week it concluded with Pharaoh having been outwitted by the Hebrew midwives, uh, pronouncing a state-sanctioned genocide over on the Hebrew babies. Every Egyptian enlisted to throw every Hebrew son into the Nile. As John said last week, it is incredible evil. It was incredible evil. And to say anything else would be wrong. And questions abound for the reader, don't they? Did God save his people from famine at the end of Genesis only now to bring them to their death in Egypt? Did God bring them out of the fire into the frying pan, so to speak? It's a question Israel will itself ask later in this very book. Once more, an existential threat hangs over Israel's head. Once more, God's promise to bless the whole world through his people is threatened. Once more, God's people need saving. And what will God do? What will he do? I want us to look through our text today in three points. God's deliverance through God's mean according to God's character. And so we're just going to walk through this narrative. As James told you, it's the entirety of Exodus chapter 2, so it's a long one, but I think the Lord has much for us today. You ready? Some of you are ready. For those of you who are ready, let's go. Point one, God's deliverance. As we come to chapter 2, we see the tides literally begin to turn. God sends a deliverer, but before the deliverer can deliver his people, the deliverer himself must first be delivered. He must first be saved. Look again at verses 1 to 4. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. And when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and bobbed it with bitumen and pitch. And she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. That's the Nile River. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now, some might consider it unfortunate or unlike unlucky that this Levite couple, this man and this woman, would give birth to a son at a time when all Hebrew sons are being systematically killed 
You might think that his birth would be greeted by maybe some discouragement or immediate sorrow. But immediately we're told that that's not the way the boy's mother thinks. It says, she saw that he was a fine child. Now, on one hand, like, who looks at their baby and is like, eh, right? I mean, granted, babies look like aliens when they're born. And if you think otherwise, you have to do the alien and the baby comparison picture, and it's, it's obvious. But like any mom, she saw that, you know, the baby was a fine child. But, but there's something more going on there. She sees the baby as literally a good child. And here the narrator isn't speaking to the character of Moses. Rather, what we're seeing here is that the child's mom has not ingested Egypt's propaganda. She does not live in fear. Instead, she sees and says about the child what God says of all children. He is good. They are good. It's an act already of rebellion, and we should hear it as such. But danger is still lurking. So, it says, she hid him three months. I don't know if you've seen that movie, uh, A Quiet Place. Have you seen that movie? It's terrifying. Don't, don't watch it. It's so scary. Um, it's with, with Jim from The Office. You know the guy? And um, in that movie, basically, the, the premise is aliens invade the earth, and if you make noise, you die. It's terrifying. But the problem is this family has a baby, And if you've ever been around a baby or you know generally about babies, what do babies do? They make noise. They make noise. And so they build a contraption and they have to put an oxygen mask on this baby and hide him in this sealed contraption so that he doesn't make noise. It's so anxiety-inducing. Like, I'm anxious right now just thinking about it. That kind of anxiety must have been something of what Moses' parents were feeling. If this baby becomes known... If he makes noise, if our neighbors rat on us, he's dead. And they're so desperate, they do what must be to them like a last resort option. What do they do? Look at verse 3. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket. Notice that word. Hold on to that word. She took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. And she put the child in it. Imagine this. If you're a parent, imagine this. She put the child in the basket and placed it among the reeds where the alligators live that are on the rushing, flowing, monstrous Nile River. I want us to pause just for a moment. See, when we come on Sunday morning, we're coming, yes, to learn from God's Word, but we're also coming, I hope, to learn how to read God's Word. And so we're going to slow down. I want to just show us how we should read God's Word. The first time I read this passage a few weeks ago, it seemed strange to me, and maybe it does to you. Do you want to put uh, Exodus 2, verse 3 back on the screen, Vince? It seems strange to me that the narrator would tell us so much about this basket. Like, is he just like an arts and crafts fan? It's like, this is how they fashioned it. Right? This, these were the moves that they used, right? Why would he tell us what it is made out of? Why would he tell us what was used to seal it up? And so as Bible readers, a good question we should ask at this point when we encounter something like this is why? Why? 
Why? If the Bible doesn't waste words, and I don't believe the Bible does, why include this? Well, believing the Bible to be one big cohesive story, we could ask this question. Where else does the Bible speak of a vessel intended to float on water that is covered and sealed with pitch? And some of you are following here, but let me show you. In Genesis 6, verse 14, we read these words that God spoke to a man named Noah. Hear them. God says to Noah, Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. Noah's ark saves Noah and his family from catastrophic flood. And that word in the Hebrew used here for ark in Noah's salvation story, this word tabah, is used only one other time in the Bible. Can you guess where it's used? Exodus 2. Here, there's an intentional parallel being drawn, an intentional connection being made. And so just notice a few things, Christ City. It's so important. Bible reading and Bible teaching and Bible loving is not just for academics and scholars and Bible nerds. It's not just for those who know the original Hebrew. It's for all of us. It's for every, every curious person who believes there is so much treasure in God's Word who is devoted to withdrawing that and extracting it from it. And so I want to encourage you in 2024, become a student of the Bible. Ask why questions of the Bible. Dig deep into the Bible. You don't need to know original languages to be a student of God's Word. The second thing I want to see, though, I want us to see this together, is the point that the narrator is making here. See, he's saying to us, God is doing something here that he's done before. God is doing something with Moses, with this boy in this ark that he's done before and he will do again. See, just as God delivered Noah and his family from the flood in Genesis 6, and just as God delivered Joseph and his family from the famine in Genesis 41, so too will God deliver his people, his family, from the Egyptian oppression we first encounter in these first few pages of Exodus. Once more, Exodus invites us to look back before we look ahead. But, but it does invite us to look ahead. Again, if you've, if you've read the Bible before, if you're familiar with the stories of the Bible, maybe what happens here in Exodus 2 sounds familiar to you. See, hundreds of years after the events of this book, we once more find a genocidal regime at work, except this time it's led by Herod, Rome's man in Palestine. Herod, however, does not feel threatened generally by the Jewish people, but by one Jewish man in particular, a man who promises to be king, a man prophesied about who will be a deliverer. And so Herod, it says in Matthew 2.16, killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under. Herod, Pharaoh, you name it, all the same. And like Moses, Jesus survives the genocide. And he does grow up to deliver his people. 
And while Moses will accomplish Israel's deliverance through a host of miraculous signs, Jesus will accomplish the deliverance of all his people through the sign of the cross and through the sign of the empty tomb. God always, hear me, Christ City, God always delivers his people. Not from every circumstance, not from every hardship, but from our enemies that threaten our eternal existence, God always saves. And so while Exodus 2 is long, it's making one big long point. God saves. God saves. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, I just want to ask you this morning, perhaps you've forgotten, let me remind you, do you know that God has saved you in Christ? He saved you. You were dead. Like, not like kind of dead. That's not a thing. You were dead, dead, and then he saved you. If you don't know Jesus this morning, skeptic, doubter, searcher, you can be saved today. What every human being needs is not a tune-up or a change in perspective or more qualified self-help. What we need is deliverance. And so if you're new this morning, I want you to know something. The, the gospel, the good news of Christianity tells us that we are both worse off than we previously thought, but better going forward than we ever could imagine. The, the gospel tells us that we're worse off because our problems are greater than we know. That our problems are not just superficial, external, right, immediately apparent, but deep. I was meeting with a group of guys this week, as I do every Friday, and we were commenting, isn't it true that while in our therapeutic age where everybody knows the Enneagram number, it's really easy for us to identify our problems, it's still so hard for us to deal with them, to actually root them out? To actually be changed? Like Macbeth, we have blood on our hands that we can't wash off. What's more, we are enslaved by forces within and forces without that are too strong for us. And so I don't know how you know Jesus or what you know about Jesus. It's a good thing then that Jesus comes not first as a wise teacher, not first as a friend, but first as a deliverer. His name literally means, for he will save us from our sins. Jesus saves. The only way through the sea of reeds is to hide ourselves in the ark who is Christ. Moses will deliver Israel from Egypt, but Jesus saves all who trust in him from the greater enemy of sin and death. Would you trust in Jesus today? Just as God brings deliverance for all people in Jesus today, so too do we see in this text that it's through people, unexpected people, unexpected people, that he brings deliverance to the Israelites. This is our second point, through God's means. Notice, Bible's open. Have, have your Bibles open. Don't close them. Keep them open. Who again are the main players in this scene? Who are the main players? Of the two Levites, it's the woman the narrator zeroes in on. It's Moses' mom 
who places him by faith, we're told, into the reeds. Moses' sister, just, just think about this, it's likely that she's between the age of six and ten. Moses' sister, possibly a six-year-old. Do you know a six-year-old? I know a six-year-old. A six-year-old girl bravely stood at a distance to know what would be done to Moses. And when Pharaoh's daughter finds the ark, this six-year-old has the courage to approach a member of the royal household and say, I know there's a decree to kill all the boys, but I want that one. <sighs> like, whoever's discipling that kid, like, give me that curriculum. Do you know what I'm saying? Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, verse 7, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew woman to nurse the child for you? She's brilliant. She's a genius. And speaking of Pharaoh's daughter, what the heck is she doing? She knows what her father has said is to be done to Hebrew boys. And yet she acts nothing like her father. She is emotionally moved toward the Hebrews. When she opened the ark, it says, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. And what does she do? Does she turn around in disgust? And then it says, no, she took pity on him, had compassion on him. And it's not like an empty compassion that we are often so guilty of. It's a compassion that is both risky and costly. It's risky because she's defying the king. It's costly because she says, you know what? Mom, go raise your baby and I'll pay. I'll pay for it. She's moved. And like we saw last week with Shifra and Pua, once more we see, as scholar Carmen Imes puts it, each woman courageously defies Pharaoh, working within her sphere of influence to resist injustice. It's unbelievable. It's remarkable. God uses these women, these ignored, culturally insignificant women, to deliver Moses. So here's what we must learn about God. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. He is always doing this. Again and again and again and again and again and again. He's always doing this. Choosing weak things to bring down strong things. Nothing things to bring down those things that are. And again, we see this most clearly in, in Jesus' crucifixion. God overcoming death through Jesus' death. God overcoming shame through Jesus' shame. We see this in our lives today as well. Who has God chosen to use? Weak people. Fringe people. Peripheral, ignored, marginalized people. And we see it in Moses' life as well. Look at your Bibles. Between verses 11 to 22, we find two stories of deliverance, not an accident. Two stories of deliverance. The first comes 40 years after Moses has been drawn out from the Nile. In the book of Acts, all the way in the New Testament, 
Stephen is recounting the story of Israel, and he speaks of these 40 years in Moses' life as a time when Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. He was a, a player on the scene. He was a mover and a shaker. So Moses goes out one day, and as our text tells us, he sees an Egyptian literally striking a Hebrew. And so Moses literally strikes the Egyptian. And, and by the way, the following day, a Hebrew will be striking the other Hebrew. Do, do you see that, that, that line being drawn there? While Exodus and Acts will both tell us that Moses did this, killed this man as someone who very consciously identified with the Hebrew people, Moses saw himself as defending the oppressed, yet the pairing of these verbs in Exodus, the Egyptian strikes a Hebrew, so the Hebrew strikes the Egyptian, so the Hebrew strikes another Hebrew, it tells us that while Moses might identify as a Hebrew, there's still some Egyptian in him. Nonetheless, it's worth noting that Moses' murder of this Egyptian man, while morally confusing, is not explicitly condemned in our text. In fact, in verse 12, look there, it says that Moses, look at it, looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian. So on first read, it sounds like Moses is being sneaky, right? That's what it sounds like. But, but this phrase, looking this way and that, and seeing no one, is actually a phrase used only one other time in the Bible. Again, the Bible's good, guys. Only one other time in the Bible. It's in the book of Isaiah. And in Isaiah 59, there we read of God. And he's scanning the earth for someone who will do what is right, who will do what is good, who will do what is just. Let me just read it for you. Isaiah 59, 14 to 16. Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking. He could be writing that today, could he not? Truth is lacking. And he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. Now look at verse 16. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. God like Moses in Exodus 2, seeing no one to execute justice, takes it on himself. Moses then, like his mother and sister and adopted mother before him, displays God's righteous character. You know, a lot of ink has been spilt on the rightness or wrongness of what Moses does in Exodus 2. And full confession, we're not even in agreement as a preaching team. A ton of fun arguing about this this week. Interestingly, however, when the author of Hebrews comments on the events of Moses' life at this point, he chooses to highlight not, not this morally confusing question, but rather Moses' faith. He writes in Hebrews 11, verse 24 to 26, 
by faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered, listen, the reproach of Christ, greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. It is is so obvious, and yet it's so significant. Moses could have ignored the mistreatment of the Hebrew people. He could have very, very easily ignored it. He could have lived his life in the lap of luxury. Egypt will be known for for centuries for its legendary wealth and riches and, and opulence. Even today, we're uncovering, wow, that was crazy. But he doesn't. Moses doesn't advantage himself in this way. Why doesn't he? And it says in Hebrews 11, for Moses to suffer in Jesus' name, and ultimately Moses was suffering for Jesus' name, to suffer for Jesus' name was better even than the legendary treasures of Egypt. Why? Because a better reward, a better city, a better treasure was coming. And so I asked this morning, Christ City, do you ever do the math that Moses does? Do you ever do the math that Moses does? Gladly suffering now? Gladly going without now? Gladly sacrificing now, knowing that the trade-off is in the life to come? God uses humble, lowly, ignored people who are laser-focused on Jesus to change the world. To shine his light into a dark world, desperate for hope. But don't mishear me. Despite the heroism that our text recounts, it is not enough. Human effort comes up short. Exodus 2 does not end with Moses or his mom or his sister or Pharaoh's daughter as the hero. In fact, did you see that in verse 22? It ends with Moses on the run. He's fleeing. Having been misunderstood by his own people, he flees to a place called Midian. It's in Midian that he'll once more act as a deliverer. This time he'll save women from some bad shepherds, a, a foreshadowing of the good shepherd that Moses will be. And one of these women will become his wife. And while verse 21 says that Moses was content to dwell with his father in law and with his new wife Zipporah, verse 22, look at it. It ends this section on an ominous note. It says, She, Zipporah, gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a a foreign land. Moses names his son Stranger. Stranger. He knows that he does not fully belong to Midian amongst the Midianites. And something is not quite right. Despite all the faithful acts of so many in Exodus 2, Israel remains in bondage, Moses is in exile, and it seems as if God has forgotten. 
And so we come to where we started. What will God do? Will God save? And turn with me to our final point, where we see, for the first time really, the the narrator introducing a new character to the story. It's our third point, according to God's character. So God delivers according to his means, sorry, uh, by his means, according to his character. Last point. Other than a brief mention of the midwives fearing God and God giving them families, God, I don't know if you've felt this so far, but God has been conspicuously absent from our story so far. Strangely absent. And I think that's for a few reasons. One, I think, I think this is true, we're meant to see God at work behind the scenes in these acts of ordinary faithfulness. That God's doing these things through humble servants, through people who fear him and who love him. But I also think that we're meant to feel something by the time we get to Exodus 2, verse 22. We're meant to feel this. We're meant to feel that our lives always fall flat. That our lives always end in disappointment. That we are always left wandering, homeless, and confused until God shows up as our deliverer, as our Savior. Everything is lost. We've reached rock bottom. This is the end. And then, verse 23, during those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Just over a week ago, I found myself in a very dark and very small home just south of Tijuana on the Baja Peninsula. And I was there with a group of people delivering food hampers on behalf of a local church to to other members of this church to encourage them, to bless them in their need. And and before we left these people to go to the next house, we we offered to pray for the family. And and this passage, Exodus 2, 23-25, was read over this family, was prayed over them. What do you think about that? What do you think about that? Maybe you think it's callous. How dare a bunch of rich Westerners from their place of privilege talk to people who've suffered so much about a God who hears, sees, remembers, and knows? Maybe you think it's callous. Maybe you think it's cheap. What these, what these people need is not more what these people need is more economic development and training, not some religious babble. That's some false hope. Maybe you think it's a lie. Maybe you thought we were lying. God doesn't hear, you say. God doesn't see. Because if he did hear, if he did see, then why did this, you fill in the blank, happen to me and to my family and in the world? And in part, I want to say I agree with you. If our Bibles stopped at Exodus chapter 2, 
I'd agree with you. If all I could offer you this morning, if all we could offer you as a church this morning was some kind of ethereal, spiritual, spiritual wishful thinking, I agree with you. But our Bibles don't end in Exodus chapter 2. And as indicated by the occurrence of the word remembered in our text, God is about to act decisively and powerfully. He will first reveal himself next week gloriously to Moses and then in power to Egypt and Israel alike. He'll put his money where his mouth is. Exodus 2.25 is perhaps better translated. Look at it. God looked on them and made himself known to them. Friends, God delivers. God saves. Notice, though, he doesn't always do it when we think he should. Look at verse 23. The many days of verse 23 speaks to the 40 years Moses has been in Midian. 40 years. Moses is now 80 years old. And while kings have changed in Egypt, Israel's status as slaves has not. The brutality continues. Nor does God always act for the reasons we think he should act. As will be evidenced later in Exodus, God does not hear or see Israel because they are particularly delightful or cheerful people. I was just watching the movie Trolls with my kids. Have you seen that movie? They're like this inherently cheerful and delightful people. That's not why God chose Israel. What's that guy? Where's the best? Let me just find them. No, it's not what he's doing. In time, Israel will commit the same evil that Egypt is committing against them. They will enslave and they will oppress. No, the reasoning for the hearing and seeing and eventual acting of God is made clear by the narrator. Look at verse 24. Here's the center of, of chapter 2. This is it. And God heard their groaning. Listen. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. This word remembering cues us to covenant application, not covenant recollection. In other words, God is all like, oh, I forgot about that. Let, 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 me, let me do something now. Whoops. No, it cues to us as a reader that God is acting. He's applying the promise that he has already made to his people. He's got to act. God is faithful to his promises. He hears Israel because of the covenant he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now hear me. He hears those men and women in that very dark, very small home in Mexico because of the covenant he has made with them through Jesus. In Jesus, God acted decisively. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Listen, Christ City. Listen, church. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. 
I want to beg with you. I'm not above begging. I want to beg with you. Believe in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. And for all who trust in Jesus, the ultimate proof that God hears, sees, and knows our sorrows, what is on offer today is not a tune-up or life hacks or some tips and tricks, but salvation itself. God saves sinners. He saved Moses. He will save Israel. And he can, if you cry out to him today, save you. Save us. Let's pray. Father, I pray right now in the name of your Son, Jesus, against the forces of darkness that would seek to remain over our eyes and over our ears as a veil, preventing us from receiving this message of salvation. And I ask for that you would come in power and in the same way you delivered Moses from the Nile, in the same way you delivered Israel through the Red Sea, that you would cause uh, hundreds of little exoduses to happen today. That you would save these people who don't know you from their sin, that they would trust in you and believe in you and so come to worship you and see your goodness and your beauty and your splendor and your might. God, we need saving. Despite what we think we need, we need saving. So come, we ask, by the power of your Holy Spirit, come and do what only you can do. But for those of us who are resisting this in our hearts right now, Lord, I ask that there would be a surrender to your will, a surrender to your goodness. Father, I pray that as we respond now, that you would move by your Spirit, not only in saving those who don't yet know you, but also, and for those of us who have walked with you for a while, would you restore to us the joy of our salvation? the happiness of our salvation, the wonder of our salvation. Would it change us? Would it change how we live this week? Would it change how we parent our kids? Would it change how we treat our spouse? Would it change how we treat our coworkers and those we pass on the street? Would it change us? In Jesus' name, amen.